Welcome to episode 43 of the Forward from 50 podcast, where we interview people over 50 who are pursuing new direction for their lives. It's an opportunity for men and women to tell their stories, their way, in their own words. I'm Greg Gerber, the founder of Forward from 50, and your host for today's show. Today I'm speaking with a former commercial videographer who changed courses in his 50s to start diving. Now in his 70s, he has a new goal of setting a record for endurance bicycling. Jeff Seckendorf enjoyed a long career in the film industry making movies, commercials, and music videos. But after he turned 50, he wanted to do something completely different that gave him a sense of purpose. So he went diving. Soon, he and a partner formed a scuba certification and training agency to teach scuba instructors how to help others become better divers. Through that endeavor, Jeff applied what he learned to train the trainer in corporate leadership. He likes the aha moments created when people who teach others discover new ways and methods to convey information to their students. While that motivated Jeff's professional interests in his 50s and 60s, today he wants to tackle a really big goal of setting a record for one-hour endurance bicycling on an indoor track in his 70s. To tell us his story and what motivates him to attempt this record-breaking feat, please welcome Jeff Seckendorf to the show. Thanks for joining me today, Jeff. I really appreciate the time. Tell us a little bit about what you did before you turned 50, because it sounds like you had quite a career or a series of careers. Yeah, it was a while ago. I'm going to have to remember all that. I had a long career in the film industry as a director of photography and a director cameraman on commercials. And I made dozens of movies and music videos and all that. And I think I directed close to a thousand commercials in New York and in California and around the world. So yeah, started as a child photographer and turned that into a little video project and then turned that into commercials, turned that into movies, and then gratefully retired from that business around 2008 or 2009. And how old were you when you retired from that? Jeez, I don't know, 52? 52, okay. Yeah. And these commercials are things that we probably would have seen at some point. At some point, but of course it's, it was years ago, but yeah, national commercials for banks and toothpaste and all the other stuff that you don't want to buy, but TV (laughs) used to encourage you to. I understand. So in 2008, you jumped into something completely different and went diving. I was looking for a way out of the film industry and without just quitting and having nothing because even not about the money, it was just more about being purposeless. I spent about five years. I actually had one producing partner who said that she thought I spent 15 years trying to get into the film industry and 15 years trying to get out. And I don't think that's uncharacteristic for many people in that business. It's a very difficult business because for most people in the film business, and I was successful, I wasn't scraping the bottom, but I was successful. My full-time job was always looking for work and my part-time job was working. So I was looking for something that had a little more focus on working and a little less focus on looking for work. And I was a a longtime scuba diver. I was a scuba instructor. I took that path when I moved to California. Prior to that, I was flying small airplanes and teaching a lot of flying. But when I got to California in the early 2000s, there was really no place that Southwest Airlines didn't go for, at that time, $49. So I eased off of flying a little bit and got back into scuba and started teaching. And one of my instructors said he was interested in starting a scuba training agency from scratch. And I thought, there's an education project that I can dig my teeth into. So 
We did that together in 2008 and I bought it out fully in 2018. And uh, so that's what I'm doing now. So it's a global scuba certification and training agency of which there are maybe 20 in the U.S., something like that. And yeah, we're one. Very so good. Does that mean that you travel around the world teaching people how to go scuba diving or do they come to you to learn this? I travel around the world teaching instructors to teach the methodology that we do. You teach the trainer. Yeah, I teach the trainers. And, and that, I run the company and I, the joke is that I dive a desk. A desk. Yeah. What was the best part about starting to teach the trainers? You developed a specific skill that you thought was important for the instructors to use. But was it cool to be able to teach people how to teach others? Yeah, I think that was the part that really turned me on most about creating the scuba company was I had been working, I had developed a program to train corporate trainers. And that's the nerd right now because I don't have time for it. But we had a company, or I had a company called The Training Cycle. And it was a very simple, really simple and very elegant method of training and corporate trainers. And so it was a very short path between that and training instructors. Plus, one of the most interesting books on training adults, I think that's ever been written, came out of the FAA and is their flight instructor's handbook. And so I, coming up younger as a flight instructor, I just learned so much about the psychology of teaching adults and how, how to manage people in stressful situations and how to create stress in a controlled environment to handle emergencies. And all of that was very applicable to scuba. And so a lot of the, the, the consciousness of the way we teach scuba came out of the world of teaching flying in small airplanes to people. And it's a similar demographic in a lot of ways. So there was a lot of crossover there. So that, that's how we developed the training program for instructors. But I have funner teaching, teaching sometimes than I do teaching scuba. Really? Why is that? The aha moments are the same, but at a very different level. Okay. When you bring someone to a point where they understand when people are, when instructors are teaching teachers and they don't know how to, this is going to be talking in circles and they don't know how to teach the teaching of the thing, then they teach the thing. For example, if you're trying to teach someone to kick in scuba a particular way, and you're trying to teach an instructor how to teach it, if you don't know how to teach the teaching, then you teach that instructor just to do the kick. You teach the thing. But of course, the instructor knows that already. What he doesn't know is how to teach that thing. So again, this is talking in circles a little bit, but what you're trying to do is get above the level of the thing, whatever you whatever the instructor is going to teach and show them actually how to manage the student's expectations, their skill set, all of that other stuff. And that's why I think teaching teachers is probably the, the most fun thing you can do. That's and I hope that just didn't sound like too much of a circle talk. No, not at all. In fact, it sounds like it'd be super challenging to be, to teach teachers because they should already know the thing. So that if yeah. you're coming in there teaching that, they're like, wait a minute, no, you're teaching it wrong or something like that. I would think that would feed into imposter syndrome for some people in a big way. You know, I think that's a good way to look at it because we're very careful on the instructor candidates who come into unified team diving that these instructor development courses never turn into a diving class. 
if, if they turn into a diving class, then our job to prep them was not done properly. Right. So you're teaching them how to motivate the students themselves and how to explain these complex and simple things in ways that make it easier for people to understand. Yeah, the students, the instructor candidates are generally pretty motivated. They're mm -hmm. spending a bunch of money and they're coming in to learn something new. And they're usually passionate about the method of diving that we do and the method of training. So motivation is generally not a problem, but the actual craft of getting these people to where they understand how we teach and how to transfer information, and more importantly, how to retain it. Education is nothing more than creating a change in behavior, right? We all know that. However, if you change the behavior and there's no retention, then everybody wasted their time. That's a so very good point. We focus on the education process of the education process, teaching teachers, but we also focus on making sure that those new instructors know how to present the material in a way that it can be re easily retained. And I think that's the whole key. You can teach your head off all day long and stand in front and use a chalkboard and blah, 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 and all that. But if they don't remember it five minutes later, there's, you just wasted everybody's time. That's an excellent point. When you said that you now dive at a desk, that's true when it comes to your business. But your life is taking an entirely different direction right now in that you're pursuing a new record. Talk us, talk to us about that or tell us. What yeah, if I race a bike, I started doing, I've ridden a bike my whole life and I started racing triathlons in my fifties. And that was really the first time I raced on a bicycle ever. And then on, on my 60th birthday, I had this epiphany that I should probably stop running because I was strong, healthy, had good knees, have good hips, still do. And all of my older friends who are running are injured in one way or another. I just stopped, boom, one day, which of course meant no more triathlons. So I needed to replace it with something. And I discovered racing a bike on the track, on a velodrome. For those of you who are your listeners who are not familiar, this is a small oval. 250 or 330 meters long, right? So four laps to a kilometer or three laps to a kilometer. And we ride around in circles and we race each other or we race against the clock. And it's on a track bike, which is one gear. The wheel is hooked to the pedals. So there's no coasting. There are no brakes. It is truly the, I believe the absolute purest form of cycling. And my, my hobbies are complex. Flying is complex. Scuba is complex. There's a lot of equipment. There's gear. Even on a road bike, there's, there's all these gears and there's all this stuff and there's traffic and there's directions and don't get lost and all that. The track just peels all of that away. Our joke about getting lost is if you can find the track, you'll never get lost on the bike. You're going around this tiny little circle. I think I've so, seen that in the Olympics when they yes. have bike racing. Don't yes. the bicyclists start on opposite ends of the track and then just ride in tandem where one might be catching the other one? Or do they both start side by side? That's one event called a pursuit. A yeah. Pursuit. Where, okay. where the riders start on opposite sides and try to catch each other. It's fast. It's hard. It's yeah. So I, w I was racing as a pursuiter and a little bit of mass start racing. And then my body seems to gravitate toward longer events. I have an engine that just works better in longer periods of time than a two and a half minute individual pursuit or 
three minute, three and a half minute team pursuits, something like that. Somebody mentioned the hour record to me and I started researching it more. I'd, I'd known about it forever. And it is, I believe it's probably the hardest thing you can do in cycling, right? Cause you're basically going at your limit for an hour and nobody does that, right? In a race, if a race is going really fast, eventually it slows down. If a race is going really slow, eventually it speeds up. It's just the flow and ebb of a race. On an hour, you can't slow down. Mm. So the challenge of this is insane. And as I said, this has been going on since the 1800s. There's, it's iconic in cycling. It's a challenge. It will provide me no income, quite the opposite, actually. It's not the least expensive thing in the world you can do, but the, the challenge is ridiculous. It's ridiculous. This is a five-year project to try to get to that record, which in my age group is about 44 kilometers. 44 kilometers in one hour? Yeah. About 27 miles. That's breezing. Yeah. It's yeah. a little quick. <laughs> my goodness. And you currently hold the world record for the six hour time trial. Is that what I understand? Yeah, I have the hour record in the, the local San Diego track in my age group. And I have twice now set the course record at the world six hour time trial championships. Very unique category, which is my age group on a fixed gear bike. So basically on a track bike, which complicates a six hour race because you can't coast, can't stop pedaling. Oh my. So yeah. So I race that every year. You're racing different. for six hours in a row. Yeah. Six hours six, straight. That's six hour time trial. Incredible without coasting. And because yeah, no coasting. the pedals are attached to the wheels, they're Correct. moving whether you're pushing down on them or not. <laughs> Correct. Wow. Correct. That would be yeah. a real challenge. What? And then there's pits, there's pit stops and we have that dialed in. So often I'm able to roll through that and somebody is swapping bottles for me. So I think the last time I did it, I, my foot was actually on the ground for way under a minute for the whole time. That's incredible. Yeah, it's fun. Yeah, <laughs> fun. It's fun. It's fun having done it. <laughs> what prompted you to go into this? This is such a unique sport. The endurance, the, the ultra. It's the world's 6, 12, and 24-hour time trial championships is the event. And I believe that the 12 and the 24-hour races are really survival events more than anything else. But six is a race. When for like an Ironman triathlete, they're riding 100, 100 to 120 miles, right? So that's a five to six hour race. And it just appealed to me to see if I could actually hunker down for that time period. And the growing pains on that race when you start it are just dramatic, right? Dealing with the saddle, dealing with staying in an aerodynamic position, all of this stuff, you know, it took me, I've done the race four times now, it took me two to figure it out, three to get comfortable or comfortable is the wrong word, but understanding of it. And then finally on the fourth one, I knew what I was doing. These things take a long time to figure out. And how do they score this? They just look at the number of laps that you can compete during that yeah. time period. Yeah. The, okay. Whoever went the farthest. Okay. Cause the lap is a set amount of space, a set amount of distance. So it's just. Yeah. It's interesting that there's like a 20 mile loop that you do for three and a half hours. And then there's four and a half hours. And then there's a five mile loop you do for an hour and a half. Okay. So you just have to complete the laps to get credit for it. So those races are outdoors. That's it. Yeah. It's outdoors. They do it every year in Borrego Springs up in the desert outside of San Diego. 
Okay. So desert yeah. cycling. That sounds fun too. <laughs> it's not because it's windy. <laughs> right. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So so this new hour record is all done indoors. So it's a little bit different and a little bit easier, I would think, for you to control the variables. It is easier to control the variables, but it's interesting about that is the marginal variables are equally difficult to control, right? Air pressure, the day, temperature, all of that kind of environmental stuff, which altitude or which elevation do you choose? Many people are doing this in Mexico at 6,000 feet, which of course, lower air density. So you go faster, less air, so you can't go as hard, right? So there are all these different parameters that we're trying to figure out. I've done lots of tall, high high elevation mountains and I don't declimatize fast. That is really a, it's genetic. My wife can get out of her car at six or 7,000 feet and go for a crazy hike and doesn't notice it. Me, it takes me like a week to get to where I'm starting to be okay. It's just, we're equally fit. She's got this genetic physiology that doesn't impact her as dramatically on the altitude. Trying to figure that out. There's a track in Europe that's at 1,200 feet that might be a better choice. So there are all these little micro marginal parameters that make the thing interesting. I love the science of it. I love the aerodynamics, the, the mechanical stuff. What kind of training did you have to do? put into place in order to prepare for that kind of racing? I have an amazing coach, Ben Sharp. He's taken a couple of people to these kind of records. And I do a very structured program on the bike. So I wake up on Monday morning and he's set up a calendar for me for the week and I just do it. Lots of intervals, lots of careful planning on how we're going to slowly bring my fitness and strength up. And we are three years into a five-year program. So we're not in a hurry. Okay. So it's not like you wake up one day and you say, I'm going to try and set this record. It's going to be a five-year process of conditional training to get you to the point where you can do your best at that attempt. I did wake up one day and said, I want to set this record. Okay. And then I realized it was going to take about five years. (laughs) So yeah, it worked that way. And I, I was about 65 when I did that. So I thought, let's just pull 70 as a number. See what okay. happens. So you don't have to look at a specific age to do the race if you wanted to. You could do it at 67 if that's what you thought. Yeah, it's their five-year okay. groups. So 64 okay. to, or 65 to 69, 70 to 74. Okay. So okay. On. So does it require any time in the gym with the weight training and things like that to get to the point to strengthen your legs and just your body to endure biking at your fastest speed for an hour? For me, it does. Okay. I, and I think for everyone, I heard someone say this the other day, I don't want to should all over you, but everyone should be in the gym mm-hmm. because as we age up, it's probably the most important thing you can do. I just think that strength training, resistance training, functional strength training, compound movements, I don't believe in machines in the gym. I think the isolation of an individual muscle without working the connectors and the stabilizing muscles around it. So I would never do a leg press when I could do a squat, right? Because the leg press just, it's too isolating and it has nothing to do with reality. Whereas a a squat or a, a deadlift with a bar or lunges, jumps, all that kind of stuff, it uses bigger collections of muscles. Mm -hmm. So it actually allows us to translate into things like walking upstairs, getting out of a car, sitting down for dinner, 
all that other stuff. So yeah, I think that, yeah, gym, free weights and a personal trainer so you don't get injured. Those are the keys. I was going to ask about personal training. It sounds like you could have done it on your own, but it's probably better to have a personal trainer kind of guiding you into developing that process to prepare your body for the, the racing. In the gym, you mean? Yes, in the gym. Yeah, I, I always feel that's better. Okay. I think the accountability is better. I think injury prevention is better. I think, again, having a structured program, because it was me, I would just go in the gym and put 300 pounds on a bar and try to deadlift it. That's just pointless. It is, because you need to be working specific muscles in a specific way, I would imagine. And build up carefully and mm -hmm. so on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did yeah. it require... But, I, but it's critical. Did it require changes to your diet as well? Not really. I have a pretty good diet. Okay. I feel like I'm full of memes today. <laughs> uh, no, I just, and I've been trying to work on this with my 12-year-old grandson, is that we try not to eat anything we can't pronounce. That's a good way to look at that. Yeah. Yeah. So if you go in a store and you look at the can, you can't pronounce something, just put it back. <laughs> That's very easy to figure out. Super easy. It keeps it clean. If the thing says chicken, you can eat it. If it says beans... You can eat it. That's right. But if it says something I can't pronounce, it came out of a chemistry lab. <laughs> Not recommended. So what you do is you have to shop on the outside of the grocery store and yeah. only buy things that you can pronounce. Yeah. And I think this goes back to the gym thing too. It's We shop, we, we're in a grocery store four times a week. Mm -hmm. What do you want for dinner? I'll run by and get it. And so food's fresh, food's new. We're just, I don't know. We mm -hmm. cook. My wife and I cook often and together and as part of our lifestyle. And I think that it's kept me on a program where I'm eating well and as much as I need. What kind of equipment did you have to buy in order to start this kind of racing? I've been slowly adjusting my track bike setup for a few years with another few years to go. I actually ordered a new frame and that'll be here, I think, January, right around beginning of January. Again, because I love the kind of science and techie stuff of this process, a lot of this is based on aerodynamics. So get a bike, put it together, do an aerodynamic test, make a small change, test again, make a small change, test again. And this is what this next year and a half is going to be about in a lot of cases. While we're gaining fitness, now's the time that I'm getting closer to this and We'll be doing much, much more aerodynamic testing on body position, on hand position, on clothing, on helmets, on wheels, all of that. A, the, the equipment is a moving target if you don't have an unlimited budget. That you was, know, if yeah. I was gonna, yeah. If I was going to spend my whole retirement on this and probably have to get a new wife in the interim because she wouldn't cotton to that. Yeah, then it becomes easy, right? Because you can just hire everybody to do everything and try all the things. But I'm trying to do this on a functional budget I'm still working, so I have some disposable income for this project. I have to be careful because you can blink and you're, it goes out of control. So this isn't walking into a bike store and grabbing a bike that looks cool and feels right and then taking it on the track. It's a specific type of bike that you would need to use. It's like getting a bike that is cool and looks okay. right and does the right things. That's a fun mm -hmm. part of it. But yeah, it's a very, it's a very specific track bike. And, and it's a bit of a moving target because the regulations for the bicycles change every once in a while. 
So there is a currency problem with finances where every couple of years, the governing body, the UCI, changes the rules for the bicycle and it tends to make frames obsolete. And then you end up having to start again. And what would, so, the, what would a bike cost typically to use in these kind of competitions? Oh man, built up wheels and all that. I don't know, six to 16,000. That's, you know, yeah, that's pricey. Not if you've walked into a bike shop recently. <laughs> yeah, I have not. So sorry. <laughs> yeah. No, you talk about sticker shock. A high-end road bike is now easy $12,000. That's Now crazy. you can spend two, no problem. But you can spend 12, no problem. Mm -hmm. Pick your poison. Is there a big difference between the types of bikes? Would an individual notice it? You're going for a speed record. So you're I looking to increase it. seconds is what you're trying to do. Yeah, I would notice it. Okay. Yeah. If you just want to go ride and have fun and do small group rides, and yeah, you don't need $12,000 worth of bicycle. Okay. But if they want to get in as serious about competing in that kind of thing, then they're probably going to make it. No, you still don't need $12,000. Okay. If you like bikes mm -hmm. and you like fancy stuff and high-end techie, geary things, then yes, go spend 12 grand. Okay. But no, you can get into bikes for much, much, much less money. I don't want to scare anybody off who's thinking that, oh my God, I've been thinking about maybe I should go get a bike and now it's, it's going to cost me like <laughs> my firstborn. <laughs> it's not the case. It's not the case. But it's not the $200 Schwinn that I used when I was a uh, 20 No, I had one of those. <laughs> I had one of those when I was like, yeah, kid. No, right, it's exactly. probably not that. My 20-year-old, 40, 50-year-old Schwinn weighed probably 42 pounds. Exactly. And my current carbon fiber factor road bike weighs 16. Wow. Quite the difference, so, isn't it? Yeah, yes. a little bit. What record are you looking to break when you go to finally get down to competing for this? If I can pull it off, it'll be the 70 to 74 US hour record. Okay. And if the world lines up, we can have a t an attack at the international record, but we'll see how that goes. Okay. And what is the time that you're looking for, the speed or the number of laps? So right now it's floating just under 43, or just under 44 kilometers, about okay. 27 miles. Okay. Any chance that will change and get to 45 by the time you're ready to do this? Likely. <laughs> I can imagine. But and we're in feasibility on it too. If we get to that point and it's, it becomes not feasible, then we're going to go a different direction. So That's what this next year is about. It's really now getting down to brass tacks, getting the gear squared away, getting the training organized, and then doing enough testing to say, look, you got an easy shot to get to 42. You got a functional shot to get to 43 kilometers, but you're never going to make 44. Okay. And then we say, okay, let's just do something else. Okay. And may, that something else might be weight. Five years, 10 years, record goes down. There's a 105-year-old <laughs> hour record. 105-year-old. Yeah, I think he went like 12 miles. That's incredible. Yeah. Five, I, yeah no, I want that one too. Don't get <laughs> that bored. That would be fun. Yeah. This whole process has led you on a path to help people identify their purpose. And then you developed an institute to do that. What are you doing to help people get to that point? Yeah. So I was having coffee with a friend of mine last year, maybe two years ago now. And he said, I have the name, this name for a company. And we we're talking about purpose or whatever. And I, he said, I don't know what to do with it. And it's called the Institute of Purpose. 
And I just thought that was one of the coolest names of anything I'd ever heard. And then it was, remember in high school, you people, somebody would like, I've got a name for a band, right? I have this cool name for a band. I don't have a drummer. I don't have a bass player. I don't know what kind of music we're playing, but I got this super cool name. So now we just have to find the bass player, the drummer, and figure out what we're going to do. Is it reggae? Is it, is it this? And that's what the Institute of Purpose was. We had the name of the band, but we didn't know who the drummer was. So we bought the website, and, the URL, and I started to sketch together a website. It went through lots and lots of different iterations of what the Institute of Purpose was. All we knew is the name was cool. And in the end of the day, at least for now, and it's a passion project, right? We're not monetizing it. We're not, we're not living and dying by this thing. But it is basically now a repository for video of people talking about their purpose. So every time I meet somebody interesting, I record this little 30, 40, 50 second video on, hey, Greg, what's your purpose? And I post it. And I've done a, since I came out of the film industry, I have this skill set. So I've done a few longer form pieces. I think you saw the one I did about the bike ride that I'm working on. And there are a few others that are really interesting. And really, it's just a place for people who are thinking, maybe I want to do something else. Maybe I'm bored. Maybe I've lost track of what my purpose is, could be, or was, and just need a little kick, just need a little guidance, a little help of what other people are doing and say, I could do that, or I could do that. Now on the bike ride, I started looking at how can I turn this bike ride into something purposeful for other people? and. It's hard because I don't want to stand up in front of a group and say, okay, you've got to train for five years. You've got to work past your limit. You've got to suffer and suffer to do this. That wasn't the goal. The goal was what can I do, energize me to get up in the morning, to energize me to do something that's harder than I thought I could ever do. I was never a professional bike racer. I came to this late. So I'm trying to find a way to be purposeful at 70. And I want to encourage everybody else to do that in any form. If it's gardening, quit it, quilting, knitting, darts, bowling, look at golf, right? Mm -hmm. People live and die by golf, but it's a very precise, technical, crazy sport that I know nothing about. But <laughs> again, it's, if you decide, all right, I want to do something good. So I'm going to learn to play the best golf I can. What happens is the process get a coach, take lessons, practice, all of that. And eventually you get better at golf. Eventually I get better at cycling. And then you take that better, that betterness, and you apply it to other parts of your life. So when I sit down to do some bit of work or write some content or have this conversation with you, it's not complicated to me or difficult because I do something 20 times harder than this every day. So what I've done is said, I'm going to do something really difficult and I may succeed. I may not succeed. I don't know. It doesn't matter. But the process of training, of developing myself as a cyclist, as a human being, all of that applies to everything else in my life. It applies to me being a better husband, a better grandfather, a better employer, better business owner. All of those things. And I think that's a big part of what purpose 
can do for you. And I also think it's a big part of what happens when you choose to do something that's seemingly difficult, but has a functional process in it that guides you to a goal and you can transfer that process, not the goal, but the process to other parts of your life, right? I know writers who say, the only good thing about writing is having written, <laughs> right? And those are people who hate the process. They just hate the process. So you're going to spend three years writing a book. You're going to hate doing it. You're going to hate sitting down in the morning. You're going to hate cranking out pages. But when you submit it and it gets accepted, bang, that's your goal. So you just wasted three crazy, fun, interesting, powerful years of process because you hated it in order to get a two-second goal of submission. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, if you love the process of writing, the goal becomes less critical. The timing becomes less critical. That's why if I knock this out when I'm 70, 71, 72, it doesn't matter. What I love is the process of training for it, the process of working this hard in this narrow little field of bike racing on the track, but knowing that after my workout of the day, the rest of my day is super easy. And that's the beauty. It's that transference that happens when you try something that's difficult and then add to add that or apply that or deal with that when things go sideways in your life, when you're having a crappy day or you can't find a parking space or the, the little tiny things that bug us, all of a sudden it's, gee, I can't find a parking space. All right, good. I needed an extra 10 minute walk. Who cares? Mm -hmm. And that kind of transference is something that I find really powerful. And that's in the Institute of Purpose, what we're trying to bring to people is say, you can do something purposeful that might be difficult, might be challenging. And the process of succeeding in the process, as opposed to the goal and outcome, is that you take that and use that brain set that you've created anything else for anything else in life. This is an interesting perspective because I have always said that purpose has to involve other people. But I hear you saying that it doesn't necessarily have to involve others if you're committing to a process to improve yourself. So that is, if that becomes your purpose, then is self-improvement is the purpose of your life. And it might not have to be serving other folks. Is that what I hear you saying? That's a very interesting and astute way of looking at this. However, okay. I have a however. Mm -hmm. If you listen to the videos on the Institute of Purpose website, all the 20 or whatever there are there, very carefully, what you'll realize is every single person in there says, in the end of the day, my purpose is to help others. Mm -hmm. Some of them obviously, and some of them less obviously. Some directly try to work with other people, and some try to do it by just influence. And so does my purpose have to affect individuals on a daily basis? No. However. The people I come in contact with who know about this, who learn about this, who start to have a vision of, God, he's doing this stupid hard thing. Maybe I should try something, but not quite that hard. Maybe it'll help me. And I think the other thing about this is if your goal is to help others through purpose or guidance or whatever it is, you don't have to help a million people. Exactly. You don't have to help five. It's nice if you can help one. Two might be a little better, but one is good. Right. And I think we have these lofty goals where I'm going to make a movie, write a book, change the world, blah, blah, blah. But you remember Margaret Mead's great quote, right? Which is never think the 
world, I don't, I'll mess, mess it up, but never think the world can't be changed by a small group of committed people because mm-hmm. indeed that's the only thing that ever has changed it. Something like that. And that's the key. One or two people can make a change. It may not change the whole direction of the universe, but it may change somebody in your cul-de-sac and then it's good. I think then it's good. I think that's a, a hindrance for a lot of people over 50 is they think that their purpose has to be grand when it does not have to be. We interviewed a woman who, whose purpose is to just invite other people over to her house to have dinner and make, and work on a puzzle and they have conversations and she provides mentoring to younger people and companionship to older people. Brilliant. Yeah. No Brilliant. That's, that's perfect. I sit in my garage when the weather's crappy on a little bicycle indoor trainer on my bike on a trainer and the door's open because it's San Diego. It's beautiful. And neighbors walk by, geez, maybe I should hurry up and get home and get on my bike. That's a purposeful influence right. on somebody who may have said, hey, I'm, I'm just going to skip it today, mm-hmm. but crap, he's out there at five o'clock in the morning. Maybe I should try it. <laughs> Good point. Does the Institute work with people of specific age or are you suggesting purpose just goes across all the ages? It does, but we have chosen to focus on a group that we've named Gen OW. I I love that. Yeah. For generation older, wiser. I am, I've been labeled as a baby boomer. My dad was labeled as the silent generation. Is there anything more insulting than that? There's Gen X, Gen Y, Gen Z, Gen Blue, Gen Green, all this other stuff. It's like these labels. It yes. just means nothing. So I was just looking at a way to actually define our audience for the Institute of Purpose. And we just, I just we, I, us just picked Gen OW for older, wiser. And it basically encompasses anybody, right? Yeah. Who gets to a certain point where they realize they're older and <laughs> By default, they're wiser, supposed and to be. And or yeah, exactly. <laughs> wiser. My, I think my 12-year-old grandson fits into this because he's 12 going on 40. And he's younger, wiser. Younger, wiser. Very he good. understands what we're doing, so mm-hmm. it's cool. Yeah. I don't think there's enough training on purpose. I agree. Absolutely. And I think that's one of the things that we're looking at with the website, with the Institute of Purposes. And it's very rudimentary most rudimentary form. It is an education website, mm-hmm. right? If you don't have any idea what to do in the morning, listen to some of these people, right? Uh, a cycling coach, a dancer, uh, a Parkinson's advocate, you know, a, a podcaster. I'm trying to think who's on there. Head of a nonprofit. Just these people are doing everything. Some are retired, some are working, some are interesting, some are not. But they all have an idea of what they like to do. So That's a good point. How are you finding these folks? Just through normal conversations? It's random. Okay. Just cool. random. People I know, people, my, the guy I started this thing with knows, just stuff comes up. When you talk about training for purpose, I guess the institution institute has developed a workshop called the Path to Mastery to help people identify their purpose. Yeah. So this is the other, another piece of it that came out of that old corporate training program I had. And it's a very simple program and it involves figuring out something you're good at now. Greg, what are you good at? Let's just say podcasts. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I'm making this up, right? So you just write on a piece of paper how you got good at podcasts. And it's generally four steps. It's discovery, training, practice, teaching. 
discovery is, oh, that looks like fun. I can apply this to flying with me, right? Because back in the airline deregulation days, I was traveling a lot and I thought, I'll just learn to fly and that'll really stick it to US Air. <laughs> but of course, that didn't exactly work out that way. But that's discovery. So I'm just going to try something. And you find out you like it, you have an affinity for it, something like that. So the next step is training. Learn how to do it, right? Learn how to do it properly. And then there's practice. And that could be two weeks or 20 years. Who knows? And I really believe that mastery comes with teaching or coaching or some kind of guiding. We always say that if here's more memes today. If the teacher learns 10 things, if the student learns 10 things, the teacher learns 100. Mm-hmm. So teaching becomes the place where you can't bluff anymore. You can't fake it. You have to know it, stuff like that. So the idea on the path to mastery program is, okay, now everybody has something they're good at. And it could be anything. It could be cooking, gardening, darts. It doesn't matter. Take that path, discovery, training, practice, teaching, and apply that to something you want to get good at. Say it's running or cycling. If it's running, discover it. Go get a pair of shoes and try it. See if you like it. Talk to other people. Then learn how. Get a coach. Learn how to properly train. Don't get injured. All this other stuff. And then practice. And now this is, could be decades. And then coach, right? So you've now taken something you're good at and you know you can be good at. And you know the process you learned you used to get to be good at it. And just apply it for something new. It's just a simple transference exercise. It takes love- 20 minutes to do this. I love that whole idea of mastery comes from teaching because yeah, in order to teach, you really have to know your stuff. And so you have to learn all you can in order to teach other people. So you get really good at what you're loving to do before you can even teach it. I and you it. can't fake it. You can't fake it. No, no absolutely. Faking. Yeah, no getting out of it. This has been really great information, Jeff. I really appreciate you sharing the story with us. How can people connect with you if they would like to follow you in your racing adventure or get more information about the Institute of Purpose? Yeah, it's, I would just say, keep an eye on the Institute of Purpose.org. Okay. There's a contact form there. There's a, a speaker's, little speaker's bureau that right now only has me in it. Hmm. It's a little passion project. This okay. Thing, and it's super cool. Super. It's super cool. Yeah. And as far as racing to make sure that they follow you on your attempt to set this time record for this. Uh, yeah. I'm not a social media animal. Okay. Yeah, you'll have to look back at the website in about a year and a half and see how it went. All right, that's a deal. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. It's been great information, and you've provided a lot of memes today. Yeah, there we go. It's (laughs) meme central. All right, thanks, Greg. I really appreciate it. Jeff Suckendorf is an amazing man. He's lived a storied life as a filmmaker, diver, and corporate trainer. But in his 70s, he's still as strong as most men in their 40s. An avid bicyclist for most of his life, Jeff started racing in triathlons in his 50s. There are different kinds of triathlons. In the Olympics, triathlons incorporate swimming for a mile, biking 25 miles, and running more than 6 miles. But Jeff realized that running in his 60s may damage his hips and knees, so he pursued endurance bicycling instead. He discovered racing on a velodrome, a small indoor oval track up to 330 meters long where competitors race against the clock to see who can go the furthest in a specific period of time. The special bikes use one gear and pedals are attached to the wheels themselves. That means there's no coasting because the pedals are moving whether the rider is pumping on them or not. There's also no braking. 
competitors are biking non-stop for one hour at a consistent speed. The record Jeff is hoping to set in his 70s involves biking nearly 27 miles in one hour. Training for such endurance events required Jeff to hire a coach to guide him through a five-year structured process to improve his fitness and strength. What I admire most about Jeff's story is that he's still setting goals in his 70s that motivate him to do something daily to reach that goal. Today, Jeff wants to help people identify and pursue their purpose regardless of their age. So he helped form the Institute of Purpose to show people how their lives can have purpose and meaning by simply focusing on ways to help others. Jeff is especially interested in helping people in Generation OW, which stands for Older and Wiser, and encompasses anyone who wants to improve in anything at any age. To connect with Jeff or watch short videos of others talking about their purpose in life, visit www.instituteofpurpose.org. That's all I have for this week's show. If you'd like help identifying a purpose for your life or to get help planning your next steps, I'm offering a complimentary brainstorming session to members of the Forward from 50 Facebook community. For details, connect with me on Facebook or visit www.forwardfrom50.com. I'll have another inspirational interview on the next episode of the Forward from 50 podcast. Thanks for listening. If you like this show, please consider leaving a review wherever you download the episodes.